Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen concludes her two-part discussion with therapist and author Dr. Alexander Solomon on relationships, self-discovery, and loving bravely. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock for another episode. I'm really looking forward to telling you about our guest today and all the wonderful work that she has done that we're going to be sharing with you about. My guest today is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. And over the last two decades, she has become one of today's most trusted voices in the world of relationships. And her work on relational self-awareness has reached millions of people around the world. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, where she is on the faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy. She teaches an internationally renowned course called Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. Doesn't that sound like a course that many of us may have benefited from? In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and therapy, she's the author of two best-selling books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon regularly presents to groups ranging from the United States Military Academy at West Point to Microsoft and many others where she talks about relationships. She's also been featured on media outlets such as the Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, and Scientific American. She's also, I want to mention before she joins us, starting a new podcast called Reimagining Love. So stay tuned and Dr. Solomon will be coming right up. So hello, Dr. Solomon. Thank you for joining us again to continue the discussion that we're having about your book, Loving Bravely. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. So last week we were starting to talk about a couple different things. One, um, this interview that you suggest doing with your parents and we were talking about the impact of history and and culture on relationships um and we're also getting into narrative your own narrative of your history which as somebody that uses the adult attachment interview heavily my mind was all over that in terms of coherency of narrative and different Mm. things that you say about narrative so i'm hoping those are some of the things that we can get to in this uh second part of the podcast let's talk about this interview that you suggest going back and doing with with parents Yes, absolutely. Okay. So the first thing I want to say about it is, um, you know, Loving Bravely came out a few years ago. And as anybody who's written a book knows, a book is, a it's like, a, it's a photograph, you know, it's much more a photograph than a movie, right? Like it is like a, the kind of summary or the capturing of my ideas, 
at the time. And so one of the things that I really regret about the way that I wrote Loving Bravely is that I used the, the language parent interview. And um, and what I would use now today is love template interview. And, and when I talk about um, those kinds of conversations with your elders, I use different language now than I used to because not everybody has parents and not everybody has parents that they would talk to or could talk to. So yeah. I, I, I have begun to use more, uh, I've begun to in, integrate more inclusivity in my language. So I use things like caregivers, attachment figures, elders, you know, I want people to look up their, you know, like look up their family tree, a level or two levels and kind of find some people older than them who were, you know, who were there when, um, when they were little, you know, who kind of influenced yes. and shaped their development. So anyways, but this is, this is something I have been doing for 20 plus years. So every student I've ever taught, whether it was a graduate student that I was training to become a couples therapist or an undergraduate student in my um, marriage 101 class at Northwestern University, every student I've ever had has done an assignment for me where they have gone to talk to people in their family who matter to them and who shape their development. And I want them to have conversations about love and relationships and development and change and gender roles and cultural, you know, cultural expectations. And so in the Loving Bravely book, there are um, sets of questions to talk to um, your elders about. And on my blog, there also, um, I've got some interview scripts. I love lists of questions because what they do is they just invite new conversations and new possibilities. So there's a number of different goals um, for these love template interviews. Um, a lot of it is what my one of my very dear mentors and friends, Dr. Mona Fishbane, calls it waking from the spell of childhood. You know, mm -hmm. we so many of us are, um, you know, well into our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, but we don't have updated stories of of our of the people who raised us. You know, we don't have updated experiences of them and we don't have them in much of a context. Um, she also has another favorite thing of mine that she says is she says it's so powerful to begin to view your parents as your grandparents children yes that was a very powerful thought that really struck me when I read that because it really changes a lot mm-hmm mm -hmm. much yeah yeah, it you know it is. There's I don't I don't ever want any of us to get stuck in parent planning, right? Like I believe that most parents do the job they can do at the time they're doing it, right? Like to mm -hmm. the outer edges of their abilities at that time, and so we have to hold on to this sort of both and of my parents did the best they could, and I didn't get what I needed when I was little. You know, to kind of hold on to both the sense of, um, you know, acceptance of what was and also mourning of what couldn't be. Mm -hmm. I imagine that comes up a lot in your work as well. Well, yes, because, uh, you know, a question on the adult attachment interview is why do you think your parents behaved the way they did as you were growing up? So it's basically, do, can you assess their experience? We're looking for levels of reflective function and mentalization. Like, can you put yourself in their shoes of what they experienced, you know? And so I think that that is what the way that that is phrased, looking at them as children of your, your grandparents is asking you in the way the question is phrased to do that. Mm -hmm. It's so empowering, right? Because it, it begins to move you from 
simply uh, a victim, simply disempowered to having a bigger sense of, um, of holding, you know, holding multiple perspectives and, and mourning for yourself while also maybe mourning for your parents. And it's not to take away, it's really, it does require a, a tremendous amount of like sort of empathy and a broad perspective to be able to hold empathy, to, to be able to hold compassion for somebody who hurt you or who wasn't able to give you what you needed while also honoring you know, your own pain. So what are some of the questions, if you want to just highlight a few of your favorites that are on this list of questions that you have students go and talk with their parents about? Mm, I, you know, I sort of um, different. So in my class, yeah. um, I give there, there's lots of options for kind of like how specific um, they want to get versus how kind of like big picture they want to get. Because sometimes I think especially college students are just beginning that process of differentiation. So it may be it may be a bit too soon to do some of that deeper work or oftentimes parents, you know, we know from the sociological research that there's a second bump in um, the divorce rate around the emptying of the nest. And so oftentimes my college students have parents who are going through a divorce. And so it isn't a great time for the parents to be, you know, kind of ask more challenging questions. But I love it when college students will go to their parents and just say, like, can you like talk to me about like, what was dating like when you were my age? You know, what was like, um, so it can even just be like a more general question, not like, not what was your dating like, but what was dating like back then? Like, tell me some stories about like, how did people date and what were the beliefs and what were the expectations? Like, what did people want from a marriage and was marriage was dating just simply for you know to find somebody to marry was it was dating considered an experience so i think it's really interesting to kind of stand shoulder to shoulder with your parents and and look at the love landscape and how was it different back then and how is it now and i think it's as important for parents of emerging adults to get curious about trying to understand their emerging adults um, experience because it's really easy for parents to project and cast judgment on how young people are dating or not dating and yes. their own wishes and their own fears and their own fantasies and their own distortions that come from their pain. And so in that conversation, I also am wanting parents to be getting really curious about their about the challenges and opportunities that their emerging adult is facing. Again, not from like a top-down, let me advise you and guide you and direct you, emerging adult, but from a like a side-by-side -side place of curiosity, like tell me about your life. Like what is your world like right now? So a lot of those that conversation can be about just inviting each generation to kind of cross the bridge and like visit the other generation's world a little bit. Yes, and going into it with curiosity and wonder. And I think that you even said, as though you're an anthropologist or something, you know, you're, you're kind right. of studying this, this, this period of time and, and how relationships were operating and what was going on. I think that one would find some very interesting, surprising things, asking these questions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the stories that I have been privileged to hear over these years are really touching. One of the first things that happened when Loving Bravely came out is I um, met a young woman who sent the book to her father, who was um, in prison. 
And, um, and she did a love template interview with him from prison. And it was um, a really healing experience for both of them, actually, for her to understand all of the different, um, you know, traumas that, that were in her father's life that led him um, yes. to be incarcerated. And then for him to get to share his story, um, it was really like one of the, it was a, a story that I got to hear right when the book came out and it's one that I have, you know, carried with me. Um, and there are, I want these conversations, you know, I think that there are times when we may go into this conversation with a, a bit of an agenda, right? We want our parent to finally acknowledge, you know, whatever, the eating disorder that we had when we were teens that never got acknowledged or the impact of the divorce that was never acknowledged. And I think that to the best of our ability, at least in this kind of like to, to, to really do like this anthropological, um, you know, ethnographic, like love template interview, we really want to try to put ourselves as much as we can in a space of curiosity and just mm -hmm. exploration And it. But it may be, it may be that what comes, what comes clear is from that conversation, you know, it may be that, that the love template conversation is the thing that then leads the person to say, okay, we did that. We were able to have a different kind of conversation. I now want to see if maybe we can have a conversation in which I ask my parent to just do a bit of witnessing, like just witness that, you know, I felt, um, you know, like my eating disorder wasn't given the attention that it needed and deserved when I was 15, 16, 17, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. I think that it, I think that those, this, these love template conversations can kind of like, just like make the ground fertile for other other kinds of conversations, other kinds of like opportunities to get to know um, our caregivers in a different way. And like to kind of free us up. What often happens is um, the younger generation comes away with a new sense of their parent that is actually less harsh, less judgmental, more forgiving, more permissive than what the young person thought. So it can, mm -hmm. it can kind of be an unburdening for the younger generation to be like, ah, oh, I kind of cast my parent as this like harsh critical figure because when I was little and they were big, anything they said had the power to either elevate me or destroy me. But actually now I'm big and their words don't hold the same sway. And actually they aren't, you know, they have mellowed with time or they don't expect from me what I imagine they expect from me. So there can be a lot of permission that comes from these conversations also. Yes. I love the phrase love template that you're using for that. Well, I want to totally switch gears on you here okay. for a minute um, and talk to you, talk with you about your lesson about healthy boundaries. And one of the things that I found so helpful about this section of your book is more clearly defining that, you know, where you, you have your chart that I want to talk about, <laughs> healthy boundary, porous boundary, or rigid boundary. And I say that because I think that's become a real catchphrase. Like you have to keep your boundaries. You have to keep your, and so what does that mean? And, and are there ways of doing that that are unhealthy? You know, when you talk about um, rigid boundary being protected, but not connected, for example. And I really liked how you, you took that buzzword, I guess we could call it, and tr you know picked it apart. So I would love if you could talk about that for a bit with our listeners. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm curious, because I, I do think, I think that part of the book especially really ties pretty directly to attachment theory. So it's yes. not, 
a surprise that's one of the pieces that you, um, you know, like wanted to pick up on. And I do, I think that, you know, bound, yes, boundaries are having, <laughs> boundaries are having quite a, quite a heyday. Yes, they are. We were talking all about the boundaries <laughs> and I love it and I am here for it. But I think there's, there are ways in which we sometimes lose a relational framework around boundaries that yes. we, um, we kind of, I think there's some like false conflating of healthy boundaries with like, um, kind of, you know, I think the goal is to stand up for ourselves without putting somebody else down, right. To find that sweet spot of feeling protected and connected. So, um, I think that there's, I think, especially when we're talking about, um, I find this a lot when I'm talking with women or to women, um, I think that women oftentimes grow up with so much people pleasing, so much accommodating, so much biting the tongue and watching all of their female elders having spent their lives, people pleasing, accommodating, biting their tongues and simmering with rage because that's the inevitable, inevitable byproduct of biting our right. tongues. We're just right. simmer in rage and resentment and like, you know. I will make you a full meal, but I will do it with bitterness because I'm freaking exhausted. Da, 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 you know, so I think that that's um, I think there's a way that it's understandable that maybe then we overcorrect and we say, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bite my tongue. But now. I do kind of the other extreme of, I don't let anything go. I'm hypervigilant. I protect myself to the extreme. I don't, I'm hyper independent. I'm ter- I, I am ultimately terrified of letting somebody care for me or let it, or anytime I do something for somebody, I am terrified they're going to take advantage of me. Right. I think there's a way that mm-hmm. we can kind of like over and then call that healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Right. Or call that. I'm just, I'm just practicing good boundaries where I think good boundaries are a conversation. Good boundaries are relational. Good boundaries are boundaries that change and evolve as people show us that they are trustworthy, as people show us that we can care for them without being taken advantage of. So, um, so that's why, right. I, I, I love a good chart. I love a good table. So. I, lo- I love your charts. I love your charts. <laughs> So in the book we do, right, we talk about kind of like porous boundaries, um, you know, as as the one extreme and then rigid boundary is the other extreme. And then like that sort of semi-permeable boundary where we feel both connected and protected. But I think that's the the bottom line is that boundaries are, there's no, I think people want to find this like exact perfect formula or prescription so that because people are afraid of like, and codependence is another big buzzword right now. Um, and so I spend a lot of time like trying to help people feel into like codependence versus interdependence because we, that's what relationships are about is that we do like people's words do matter to us and, you know, caring for people and accepting people's love. Like that's what interdependence is about. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts about kind of this heyday that boundaries are having right now. Well, what I think in terms of the chart and what you're explaining is that how what one sees as healthy boundaries comes out of their if if we want to call it their love template or if if we want to say one's attachment classification because if one's more 
dismissing state of mind as assessed by the AAI, there is going to be that suppression of the attachment system, which means stay back, I'm protected, I'm safe, I don't need you, I'm going to be independent, versus somebody whose state of mind on the adult attachment interview is preoccupied, and I would, you know, see them having the poorest, you know, that the attachment system is overactivated, and I'm constantly worried about losing you and being abandoned and just kind of, um, you, you know, overly needy or, or or something like that versus the secure um, boundary connected and protect, like there's this balance mm-hmm. of both. So there's, there's not an extreme one direction or another. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying these are direct correlates or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that those are some of the things that came to mind from an attachment perspective as I was reading about that. Mm-hmm. The main point being it comes through the lens of your model of relationships. So you can't, mm-hmm. how how one person's model of relationships defines boundary is gonna be really different and maybe not so healthy than another. And so that's what I why I appreciated so much you breaking that down. Yep, yep. I, you know, while we're on this, I would love to ask, ask you about what, um, you know, I, I have been so struck the last, I think it's really since, since um, Amir Levine, Amir, Amir Levine, right? Attached. Um, since the Attached book came out a few years ago and has been so, mm-hmm. so popular. Like I, you know, I'm really active on Instagram. And so I'm getting like, I get, you know, DMs, quite a few DMs and messages and questions. And when I give webinars, it, it is, it comes up so often that people say, you know, I'm anxiously attached and da, 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 or I'm, um, you know, I'm more on the anxious side of the spectrum and I'm dating somebody who's more on the dismissive side of the spectrum. Like the amount of times that people are framing a question or framing an experience with attachment language blows me away. And it's brand new. It was not this way even five years ago. And I think there's something that is so fascinating and important about people being able to identify themselves, um, you know, by their attachment style. And I find myself sometimes worrying about people like kind of over-identifying with their attachment style and taking it out of a context um, and, and almost like putting almost sort of taking that, taking that, that one frame or label as mm, almost like fatalistic mm-hmm. um, in a way. I'm curious what, what it's been like for you to see attachment theory so much in sort of popular discourse and people using it um, you know, like in making, integrating it so richly into their own understanding of themselves in relation, like what's that like for you as an attachment researcher? Well, first of all, I don't consider myself an attachment researcher. I mean, I do consider myself as a clinician um, who um, partners with um, an attachment, attachment researchers on some projects. Um, I think what I would say about that is I think it's sloppy. I think it's concerning. <laughs> I think it's dangerous. I think attachment is on a continuum. And in clinical practice, we're not wanting to put people in specific boxes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the goal of research. That's the way it has to be. Yeah. But attachment is across the continuum. So um, I worry about um applying these boxes to uh, clinical practice because that's not really what they can inform us but as you're saying taking on such a strong um 
you know, ownership of that being the way I am when there's some fluidity to that. And even with the, the rating system of the AAI, you can be secure, but kind of be a little just missing within that overall classification. So, so there's lots of pieces to it. And that, the second thing I would say that concerns me about it is, you know, there's a whole set of literature using the adult attachment interview from the developmental sciences and psychology versus the social sciences with Hazen and Shaver and some of these um, romantic uh, assessments yeah. of romantic relationships and versus the AI, which is looking at your childhood relationship with your parents and people are conflating those um, and getting them very confused and mixed up. So, um, it's a whole separate set of literature and work and some of it's interrelated and some of it isn't. So as much as I love it, um, I, the AAI and understanding attachment classifications, I worry about the same things that you're probably thinking about. I think that's, I'm, I, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I never want to say things that, dismin that, that convey that I am anything but utterly respectful of attachment research and grateful for its ability to bridge, you know, understanding, like to help us bridge early experiences and mm -hmm. later consequences, right? Like, I think it is such an important framing theory, but yeah, I mean, what you're saying is that, is that you worry when it is like separated from a deeper understanding yes. or treated like, now that I know my attachment style, I know everything and, and the I just have to like move through the world in that way because right. I mean, that's if the, 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 all of the adult romantic relationship attachment research, like Sue Johnson's um, work, for example, has found that like with like the, in, in the context of a secure intimate relationship, like we can earn security, we can shift right. our attachment yeah. styles and that we are able to kind of heal. And certainly we do like our early experiences are wildly formative and leave us with a particular orientation to relationship and then we get to have experiences from there and in a happy, healthy, intimate relationship that is that is devoted to relational self-awareness and healing, um, we can become more secure in that context. Absolutely. History is not destiny. You know, we know that these things can change. And so I don't like someone label and, and, and I have seen people being given a label of a certain classification and it's quite upsetting to them and not helpful mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i think it's it's something to be very aware of and i'm glad you're highlighting the point mm -hmm. so even though i feel like i spoke a little bit too much on your interview no oh my gosh absolutely this is your show. i'm on your show this is your, i'm just a visitor in your in your space so so dr solomon we have a couple minutes remaining and i want to just tell everybody all about all the wonderful resources you have um your second book um your podcast i also want to say um there's a spot and i i did this myself for loving bravely if you go to the website um of your publisher there's all kinds of downloads mm -hmm. like a reading guide and there's you know what could be considered show notes and more um you have other things to download from the book so 
everybody get this book. Um, and I want to hear what else you want to say about your other resources and things you want to direct people to. Mm, well, thank you so much for, um, you know, for celebrating the book and for sharing it with your community. I, I appreciate um I, it's a book that I, I stand by and I'm proud of, and I really believe in its power to just, you know, it's not, no book is the answer to everything at all, but it is, I'm really passionate about giving people processes and ways of understanding and putting pieces together for themselves. And I do think it is, um, I do think that the book is a, a, you know, powerful and effective journey into self and understanding, you know, what we bring, what we bring into our relationships. It's not about blaming anybody. It's not about feeling, you know, lousy about anything that we, that we have done or that we have experienced. It's just making sense of it so that then we have the ability to say, aha, here's that pattern again. You know, I know that in situations when I feel threatened or misunderstood, I'm at risk of feeling like this. Okay. So now what do I want to do differently? Like what tools do I now have at my disposal that I didn't have before? And that's so exciting when, whenever we get to experience ourselves responding differently Uh um, in a situation that's such an, it's so exciting, right. To get to like Say, yes. oh gosh, look at me, like, look at me responding differently and to feel that sense of pride in our own um, growth. It's so yes. wonderful. So I went after Loving Bravely came out, I was like, oh, shoot, I have a lot more I want to say about sex because everything that has to do with our history and culture and gender and family of origin um is comes into play in around our sexual relationships around our un- understanding of our own erotic selves and so then my second book was um taking sexy back which is just a journey and it tends you know i had to because any conversation about sex is highly gendered um i chose to focus on those who have been socialized in the feminine on female readers on vulva bodied people and the experience of what happens at the intersection of of women and sex um and so that book is is really a deep dive into understanding the messages that we've been given so that we can then um, feel some more authority and agency and integration of our sexual selves in the service of healing and creating um, experiences for ourselves that feel really good and connective and celebratory rather than disconnecting or confusing mm-hmm. or upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that book is also available wherever books are sold. And you mentioned before the podcast and yes. um, you and I, you and I are actually talking on podcast, podcast <sighs> pub days, so the first episode, which is a Conversation with Esther Perel comes out today and oh, yay. Is, um, yep, the show is called Reimagining Love and it's available wherever, you know, wherever people listen to their podcast. So I'm very, very, very excited about that show and excited for people to listen and have just more opportunity. We've, we've got a really unique design for the show that I think are going to give people um, different avenues to, for how they're going to grow relational self-awareness. And my yeah. website is a great, great. place to go. So, so, yeah, my website yes. is a great place for. Yeah, and no, what, what is your website? Obviously, today people can just Google it, but do you want to Google your name? But did yes. you want to share? It's dralexandrasolomon.com. Thank you so Thank much, you. Karen. It was a treat to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.